0: All right, we are back and have a little less than a quarter of an hour to work with. Let me say a word or two about medicine, some trends that are good and bad. First off, there's more information than ever available on the internet. Noted New Scientist magazine last year, if you ask a physician about all this data, you may be met with a resigned roll of eyes, noting that even if a patient has tapped into a reliable source of data, their understanding of how it applies to them may be way off base. And I do see this in practice, patients coming in wondering if they might have some obscure disease, which statistics would say they very likely do not have. It reminds me of how in the early days of medical school, we would read the medical text and think, oh my God, maybe I have that. Well, now you don't have to go to medical school to do this. It's available pretty much to everybody. But in this physician's opinion, this is far more good than bad. One just needs to keep in mind the old adage that if you're going down the street and you hear hoofbeats behind you, well, the first thing you shouldn't think of is zebras. I do think that this greater flow of information uh, in the marketplace of ideas, as it were, does promote clearer writing and clearer thinking, even though there's, of course, uh, you know, all sorts of Shrelatinism and fraud out there You know if you've ever tried to read uh, um, Medical journal articles How difficult they can be to get through Sometimes I would say unnecessarily so Sometimes I would say Due to the fact that the author's Writing skills are not what they should be Sometime back a new scientist A man named Steven Str- Strauss Sounded off on this topic Which I think is worth a quote from over the past 20 years, healthcare has experienced a Protestant reformation. In the dim dark past, to visit the doctor's office was distinctly high church. A patient entered as a supplicant, confessing symptoms to the priestly physician, who would consult sacred texts, written in a language no one who hadn't spent 12 years studying could understand. The physician would return with a diagnosis and treatment, whose language the patient was also unlikely to comprehend. Then the Internet came along. Suddenly, ordinary people could consult the holy texts themselves. The article notes that by 2008, a study showed that three-quarters of Internet users searched for health information. Strauss notes that unfortunately the best information, peer-reviewed articles, are still written as if only the priesthood would consult it. Studies have found that medical articles often have a readability score equal to that of the densest of legal documents. One result is that the information people get from the Internet is often at variance with journal articles. He proposes a simple solution, Mr. Strauss does, let's translate the medical texts into graphical plain speak, which journals would require their authors to use if they want to be published. He added, medical terms may always have a Latinate quality, but why can't each paper also come with a standard graphic, which could be posted online to say to patients, this is what our findings mean to you, not to scientists or doctors, to you. Of course, I do fear if you tried to apply that to most articles, you'd wind up pretty hard-pressed to come up with a punchline. We do obituaries in this program from time to time, and I would like to do two today, the first being that of Robert Thornton. Dr. Thornton taught biology, botany, and plant physiology to undergraduates for 35 years here at UC Davis. He passed away last March in his home after a, a battle with cancer at age 75. I'm very sorry to note this because I took Dr. Thornton's basic biology class biology 1 back in my freshman year at UC Davis and I thought it was just an awesome class. Evidently I wasn't alone. Dr. Thornton received the Academic Senate's Distinguished Teaching Award in 1975. He was the co-author of a widely used plant biology textbook and retired back in 2001. Dr. Thornton was not the sort of fellow who needed uh, to take lessons on how to make um, (laughs) the dissemination of data clearer. He was very gifted at this, and I am, to this day, eternally grateful for his teaching. We do try, dear listener, to sometimes take a little extra time to be able to present data in a clearer fashion on this program, and I think that uh, one of our inspirations for that would be Dr. Robert Thornton. And another researcher of science whose passing we should note is that of Virginia Johnson. I think we mentioned this in the program some time back, but let's take a minute to, to cite what Virginia Johnson has done for all of us. Back in the 1950s, there were very few places where couples with sex problems could seek any help. They could go visit a priest and pray for enlightenment or maybe see a psychologist and told their problem probably was rooted in issues with their mother. But in 1957, a middle-aged gynecologist named William Masters recruited Virginia Johnson, who would later become his lover and then wife, to work on a pioneering study of human sexuality. In their laboratory, they documented hundreds of couples at every stage from arousal to orgasm. Their groundbreaking findings, published in this series of popular and controversial books in the 1960s and 70s, would permanently illuminate the once taboo subject and make the names Masters and Johnson as synonymous as sex, as Kleenex is to tissues. It was in 1966 that Masters and John- Johnson published their first book, Human Sexual Response. It was written in dry scientific language. In fact, it, it bent over backwards to be dry and scientific. But it was nevertheless a sensation thanks to its shattering of numerous sexual misconceptions. Their research showed, among other things, that despite Sigmund Freud's claims, there was no difference between a vaginal and clitoral orgasm, and that it was healthy for elderly people to have sex. It was noted that during their own marriage, which lasted from 1971 to 1993, the two were often asked how they kept their relationship harmonious. They replied there was one subject they never discussed at home, politics. Politics. Speaking of politics and biology, how about this recent effort to give legal rights to great apes? Over the past 20 years, a movement has taken root to urge governments and the UN to grant legal rights to chimpanzees and other great apes, also ban their captivity in zoos and circuses, and their use in medical research for treating diseases. Perhaps in keeping with this, the U.S. government did announce this year that it would limit funding for medical research on 50 chimpanzees. Because some of this bogs down in the fact that it's impossible to prove whether apes are conscious since neuroscientists can't agree on how to define consciousness. This is a curious movement. We'll have to keep an eye on it. Oh, and by the way, in case you're ever wondering how it is that the chimpanzees and orangutans swim, well, well, it appears the jury's in on this one. Unlike most animals, which tend to rely upon the dog paddle, uh chimps and orangutans like humans, apparently prefer the breaststroke. This finding comes from footage taken by Renato Bender at the University of Witwatersrand in South Africa showed that both of the apes instinctively opted for a version of the breaststroke to keep afloat. And uh, they speculate that our tree swinging past may explain the difference because both humans and other apes have shoulder joints that can move in all directions instead of one plane, like the shoulders of most other mammals. And speaking of swimming mammals, how about that Diana Nyad? She's had a lifelong goal to swim the 100 miles between Cuba and Florida, and she finally succeeded on her fifth attempt, which is something. But in other animal news from Florida, the current edition of National Geographic has a piece on um, Florida declaring open season on pythons. To quote from the piece, Florida has discovered something that parents of teenage boys have known for years, snakes escape. For decades, wholesalers in Florida have imported tens of thousands of pythons to supply American and international pet stores. Among the most wa- among the most popular has been the Burmese python. And unfortunately for Florida, thousands of them, perhaps multiples of that, are now permanently established in southern Florida. Florida's ecosystem. The magazine also talked about the, uh, the hunt they held several months ago, which we were making fun of. Because, as the magazine points out, after a month-long contest, uh, they managed to harvest a total of 68 pythons, which makes us realize that hunting is not going to be a solution to the python problem. In the same issue, in National Geographic, they had a curious chapter on the Parade of the Painted Elephants noting how that in, in an annual festival in Jaipur, India, uh, adorning pachyderms is devoted to an art form. Now, we have no way of knowing whether the folks who were objecting to elephant rides up at the fair recently would have anything to say about this. And I would just like to add to that that while in Thailand many years ago, we took a trek into the hill country, and one of the legs of the trek involved riding on the back of an elephant, which I thought was pretty cool. And I think that uh, keeping elephants employed in such activities may keep them from being turned into uh, carved ivory bought by the Chinese. I personally hope that the ability to ride on an elephant will be retained by human society. And, uh, and for that matter, riding on horses, too. Which does remind me of a letter to the bee last June where someone sounded off on the issue of activists wanting to get rid of the, uh, the horse carriages that ply their trade in Old Sacramento said a writer at Raina Carlson. People who build your iPads are treated worse than those horses. Which might be true. And a piece in uh, Yesterday's Sacramento Bee by Cynthia Hubert uh, has me scratching my head. Describes how 1,200 chickens are going to flee the cleaver in an airlift. Yes, apparently Grass Valley is about to become a sanctuary for a bunch of um, egg-laying chickens who, as they got older and Produced less, were generally destined to become pet food, but instead are going to be turned into, well, I guess, a, a herd of free-range chickens that don't have to earn their keep. And I guess this is a nice bookend uh, in closing to the rather hair-raising piece in National Geographic, the same issue I've been quoting from, about uh, the effect that trapping and killing birds is having on migratory birds that try to get through the Middle East. I'm pretty horrified by the article, but fortunately, uh, we don't have time to go into it, and ma- maybe we shouldn't. It's a pretty sad commentary on a lot of issues, but you know, I want to end the show on an up, so let's see. We got like a minute. All right, in the couple minutes we have left, let's return to medicine. A uh, piece from New Scientist, August 24th, issued, entitled, Don't Swallow Them. piece by Carolyn Williams said, we are constantly being bombarded with health, health advice, but not all of it's based on rigorous evidence. To which I would add, duh. Well, let's start with one we bagged on in this show in the past. This myth that you should drink eight glasses of water a day. This apparently is based on no scientific data whatsoever. The source might be a 1945 recommendation by the U.S. National Research Council that adults should consume one milliliter of water for each calorie of food, which works out to about two and a half liters a day. But it turns out it's not true, simply not true. And it's also not true that caffeinated drinks don't count because they're a diuretic, stimulating your body to lose more water than it gets from the drink. It's just not true. Peace notes the final aspect of the myth is that we need to force ourselves to drink because by the time we're thirsty, we're already seriously dehydrated. Oh, not so. Myth number two, sugar makes children hyperactive. Well, it turns out a 1996 review of 12 blinded studies where no one knew whether the kids had gotten sugar or placebo found no evidence to support this notion, which is true even for children with ADHD or whose parents consider them to be sensitive to sugar. And curiously, it turns out the kids that do get a snack apparently are able to concentrate better on tasks and score higher in memory tests. So, uh, you know, sugar may have its downside, but apparently making your kid hyperactive in one of them Uh, Myth number three, our bodies can and should be detoxed. Well, the piece notes that for a start, we already do this all the time anyway with the help of our livers, kidneys, and digestive systems. They note that most of the toxic chemicals we consume are broken down or excreted, or both, within hours. And when it comes to some of the nasty things that are not that may be lodged in our fat, well, if you diet and try and detox, it releases these fat-soluble chemicals into your blood rather than eliminating them, which might work against you. Anyway, that's a complex uh, subject we'll have to return to at some future point. Myth number four is that antioxidant pills may help you live longer. Well, scientists have been thinking this is true since the 1970s forward. But unfortunately, study after study has shown that while antioxidants, you know, may be helpful, at least in the test tube, uh, popping antioxidant pills doesn't seem to provide people with much benefit. And even worse, some studies suggest they might be harmful. In 2007, a review of nearly 70 trials involving almost a quarter of a million people concluded that not only do antioxidant supplements not increase lifespan, but the supplements of beta-carotene and vitamins A and E actually seem to increase mortality. Ooh. All right, myth number five, being a bit overweight means you'll die sooner. Well, no, not unless you're really overweight. Being slightly overweight appears to be somewhat beneficial. And lastly... We love this one. We should live and eat like cavemen. This one falls down because we're really not sure how to eat and live like cavemen. We don't know that much about cavemen, Fred Flintstone aside. Current studies suggest that some of the things about these so-called paleo diets may be good, but others may be useless or perhaps even harmful. And that does it for time. Our thanks to Christopher Arnes. His book, Sacramento and the Gold Country, is one that, uh, well, we think you're listening to you, you might want to check out. This program was produced by Edward McMillan, and we're glad to report he's no longer under house arrest. Just kidding. Anyway, this has been Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week. At the same time, we'll talk more about some curious medical things. We'll see you then. out